the school is out. Which means it's time for Hi Kids. Hello everybody and welcome to the Car Kids. It's also for kids and bar kids. My name is Jacob Gordon and I'm 12 years old. Coming up on Car Kids today, I'll be talking to Seren, Seren, Kaplan, a psychologist, and I will also have the Car Kids Riddle to Challenge Your Thinking. Here are the details if you have any questions for my guest or if you want to answer the riddle or even just to say ha. The SMS number is 34519 and charge up or you can send me a WhatsApp on 062-148-2374. Please sign your name so I can give you a free shout-out on air. Get ready for an interesting show on Car Kids. That's right after this. This is the Car Kids for Kids and Bar Kids. My name is Jacob Gordon and I'm 12 years old. We are starting a cool new feature on Car Kids show where we bring in one of our special listeners and find out a bit more about you guys. If you want to be our next special guest, you can email matt at highfm.com. That's M-A-T-T at C-H-A-I-F-M dot C-O-M. And now, are you ready for the riddle? Here it is. What goes through towns and over hills but never moves? If you know the answer, then send me an SMS on 34519 or WhatsApp 062-148-2374 with your name and the answer. And you could win a prize from Kid & Co. if you're the first one to get the answer right. Remember, though, you still have to give others a chance to win. So if you have won on KFM in the last 90 days, you can still enter the riddle, but you will not be able to win a prize. Today, I have Saren. Seren. Seren Kaplan, a psychologist in studio with me. If you have any questions for her, you can send an SMS on 34519 or WhatsApp 062-148-2374. Good afternoon, Seren. Hi, Jacob. I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on today. So let's start simple. Can you describe in simple terms what a psychologist does? Of course. So, Jacob, a psychologist is somebody who is trained in and has expertise in understanding mental health, which basically means that they help people to cope with feelings like depression or sadness or anxiety, which means things that worry them or stress them. They also help people to figure out stuff that's troubling them or causing them unhappiness. They can help people who are having difficulties in relationships, like in their families or in friendships maybe. They also help people to adjust to and deal with changes that have been hard for them, like maybe a loss through a death, illness, divorce in the family, maybe getting a new job or going to a new school, or if maybe something traumatic has happened to them, like an accident, or they've been in a hold-up or witnessed something that's distressing for them. So you work mainly with the emotions and mental health, not physical. Exactly. So that's exactly what psychologists do. They deal with feelings and emotions that are causing people to feel distressed. So as a psychologist, do you have to study at a university or do you go to college or how do you qualify as a psychologist? 
Okay, so it's a, it's quite a lengthy process. You start off at a university. It is a degree, and there are a number of universities in South Africa that offer very good training in this area. And you start off, Jacob, with doing what's called an undergraduate, which is in the form of a BA, a Bachelor of Arts, which is more of a general degree, and that takes you three years to do. And what you do is you have what we call a major in psychology, where you start to focus increasingly on looking at psychology specifically. Then if you choose to, you go on to do what's called an honors degree, which is your fourth year of study in psychology specifically. And then you go on to do a master's degree um, in psychology, which takes two years to complete. It's got an academic requirement. And you also spend a year doing what we call an internship, which is basically practically learning all sorts of stuff about practicing as a psychologist. And all of this takes about six years to complete. Wow. So it's really you have to be very committed to become a psychologist. Okay? Six years, that's a long time. Exactly, exactly. It is a big commitment and it takes some time to get through various selection processes. But I often say to prospective students, if it's your passion and it's something that you really want and you are um, committed to the process, um, it's certainly something that's well worth exploring. Right. So then I understand when it comes to a medical doctor, when you're studying, you need to take what is called a Hippocratic Oath, which provides guidelines for how you can relate and treat your patients. Is there something similar for psychology? Exactly. So the ethics around um, being a psychologist and doing therapy are extremely important. And confidentiality and privacy is probably one of the most important things that make people feel comfortable to talk freely and feel safe to share what they're struggling with. And there are ethics boards who outline lots of different rules around this that psychologists have to pay very careful attention to. And really the only time that you can go over and above these is if you know someone plans to harm themselves or harm someone else all the other times you need a patient or a client's permission if you speak to anyone else about them, even a teacher, maybe a boss or other doctors. And this this um, governing body take care of all the details around practicing um, ethically and with integrity, which means um, making sure that your, your patient's interests are very carefully looked after. Right, so you need to look after your patient's interests and you can't go around blurting out to anyone, right, what exactly. your patients tell you. But then what happens, say, there is someone who forgets about this or does do it? What could happen to them as a psychologist? Okay, so that's a that's a um, an important thing to ask. Um, this controlling body, this this um, ethics board, would probably have um, a complaint. They would receive a complaint about you, and you would probably have to appear before them as a board, and they would probably evaluate what has happened, and you'd probably get quite a severe warning because, as I say, this is very carefully controlled um, in order to protect people. So, like, say they do it again, like. Can, are there worse consequences? Well, I guess that if you repeatedly were going against what we call this code of conduct, conduct, you'd be very much at risk for losing your license and perhaps be stopped from from practicing if you were found to be um, in transgression of, of all these details. So is that according to the law or who who is this board and what do they do that like 
prevent you from doing this? Okay. So there, there are experts who um, are elected onto a board and who specifically trained and have got years of experience in, in, in doing this and ethics is their area of specialty. And they're kind of like the watchdogs or the policemen of the profession, as it were. Do you know of any other professions that have this type of thing? Well, I guess it must exist in other professions like law. I'm pretty sure that there are ethics um, committees in law, for example. And as you rightly say, certainly in the practice of medicine with the Hippocratic Oath and boards who look after those sorts of things in medicine. So what types of psychologists are there? Are there like specialists and other things like yep, that. There, there certainly are. There are, spe- there are child psychologists, there are industrial psychologists who work in industry and in companies, and then there are certain clinical psychologists who specialize in certain areas, like you might decide that you enjoy working with couples or with families, or you might have particular areas of interest, like an addiction or with eating disorders. Then there's a branch of psychology called neuropsychology that aims to understand the brain and behavior and how those two relate. So there certainly are lots of different specialties within the, brain, the, the broad framework of psychology. Um, I've read somewhere about two different types of psychology, and I was wondering if you could explain to us what they are. What are those? So I've heard of mob psychology Mm -hmm. and uh, reverse psychology. Okay, so mob psychology is um, a very interesting thing because it falls under the branch probably of... um, understanding groups, you see. So there is a psychology that pertains to group behavior, how groups of people tend to behave um, when whether um, under stress or in different you know, circumstances. So mob psychology is something that we would um, see as a branch or a specialty, certainly, and would be very interesting to, to unpack and understand what people do when they're part of a group and how they behave under stress or under excitable conditions, etc. Okay, and then reverse psychology? So I don't know a lot about that, to tell you the truth. Maybe you could tell our listeners a little bit. Well, from what I understand, it's when you, like... You say the opposite of what someone wants to hear, and then it like it messes with them. I don't know how to explain. <laughs> well, maybe you can try that out on your friends. I have heard that said when you you're aiming for one thing and you're saying another, and maybe you set up the behaviour that you're really hoping for. Yeah. Um. So, what different ways do you use to understand what a person's challenge and issue is? Do you only use talking to each other, or are there other forms? Okay, so essentially, psychotherapy and therapy is known as the talking cure. So it most certainly uses as its main treatment um, talking and chatting and having conversations. So that is the main thing. But we also focus on other things. We have different tools and different techniques we use. Say somebody's under a lot of stress, we might teach them techniques like breathing or relaxation techniques. But definitely the talking is the main thrust of this kind of treatment. You're listening to Hi Kids on 101.9 Hi FM. My name is Jacob Gordon and I'm 12 years old, this is the Kharkid Show. My guest in studio today is Siren Kaplan, a psychologist, and we were in the middle of our questions. So, moving on, I think we're going to go to bullying. Okay. I assume that because you're a psychologist, you have to deal with many cases of it, yes? I certainly do. 
So do you treat both the bullies and the victims? Have you treated both? Um, I, I do treat both of them because what we have to understand is that very often the bully themselves have got some personal problems, perhaps at home or um, within themselves. They're doing it as a way to get attention. Perhaps they themselves have been victimized or, or um, bullied. And what we have to understand that they often have bad feelings about themselves that they can't cope with and they try and use bullying as a way to control these difficult feelings for themselves. So we definitely, when we are addressing the topic of bullying, we try and focus on the victim and the person who's doing the bullying as well and offer them some support and assistance. Right, so you feel that often the bully has reasons not not to justify it, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. they have personal issues that might cause them to do this. That's absolutely right. And if we find that if we do a little bit of digging around, those sort of difficulties come to the surface, and if they get more support and help with that, very often the bullying behavior would then subside somewhat. So there's a new type of bullying that hasn't been around long. It's called cyberbullying. Could you please tell us what this is? Sure. So cyberbullying is a whole new face of bullying that we're encountering. Um, basically, what it is, Jacob, it's using technology to threaten, to embarrass, to target, to pick on or terrorize someone. It's about using technology on purpose over and over again to try and upset or hurt someone. It might be posting comments, messages, photos or screenshots that are mean or untrue or very personal. It can be or involve filming you or taking photos of you without your permission, sharing that information in front of everyone online, maybe making fake accounts or profiles pretending to be you, hoping to embarrass you and say bad stuff about you. It can also involve excluding people, leaving them out from group chats, talking about them online, behind their backs, um, and it can be a very damaging and very, very um, difficult um, form of bullying to deal with. So how how is it different from your more general um, forms of bullying? Okay, so online, kids tend to take more risks. Um, than if they were facing a person face-to-face or in person. Because online, you're much more anonymous, and bullies tend to feel much safer and much more powerful. Also, they tend not to feel bad because they don't directly see their victims' responses of hurt to the bullying. So they can say damaging things and cause a lot of pain without really taking responsibility of the, the, the immense amount of hurt that might come, come the victim's way. Also, Jacob, it's different because it's very unpredictable. It can happen anytime and anywhere. It's not just restricted to the classroom or at school. It can follow you home. You don't know when the cyber bully will strike again. It's also very widespread. Messages online can be forwarded instantly and be seen by many, many people very, very quickly. So it's a particularly harmful and difficult form of bullying that we're encountering today with technology. Um, Do you find that cyberbullying is increasing or becoming less? Well, as as technology is here to stay, and so we're seeing young people using technology in such a widespread way. I mean, your generation, Jacob, are what we call digital natives, which means that you've grown up 
from the start with technology, understanding yeah. it and using it. And you what we call screenagers, which means you are completely at home and familiar with using screens. So definitely cyberbullying is on the increase and experts in this field are very concerned about it. Some of the stats that we're reading is that one in four people Children, really, between the ages of about 10 and 14, do report being cyberbullied. And one in six actually admit to having cyberbullied themselves, you know, somebody else that they know. It's also interesting that um, you can be cyberbullied by a friend or even somebody you don't know. So you can literally be cyberbullied by anyone that sees your account or whatever it might be online. Exactly, exactly. So it's important to know that technology doesn't cause people to behave badly, but some people do use technology to do harmful things, like cyberbullying on Facebook, YouTube, Snapchat, Instagram, Twitter, and children in this age group between 10 and 14 generally get cyberbullied on their phones because the phone is the main form of technology that kids in your age group tend to use. Do you find, what ages do you find cyberbullying common to? Well, it begins really young. The minute you are given access to a smartphone, there is potential for cyberbullying. So we are seeing incidents of cyberbullying right from sort of early teens right the way through. And um, it's very widespread across all ages in within teenage years. Do you often um, or do you believe, sorry, that there is a need for education of the issues of cyberbullying? Absolutely, I do think so. And I think this has got to start, I think we've got to talk about it in schools, we've got to talk about it amongst each other and um, in our families. And generally there has to be what we call a zero, no tolerance rule that we take with bullying, all forms of bullying, cyber or otherwise. Um, schools need to have a cyber bullying and bullying policy firmly in, in, in place with rules around that. And conversations need to happen amongst each other around what it means to be a bystander. Because really, Jacob, when we're silent, that's what gives the cyber bully or any bully the power. So we've got to teach kids about saving evidence around cyberbullying and the most important thing, telling an adult about it. Um, usually research tells us that kids tell each other but are more reluctant to tell an adult. Um, maybe they're afraid that it would get worse. But the silence, as I say, makes sure that the bullying behavior stays in place. There are ways that we can teach kids to manage, like blocking the cyber bully, removing them from your friend list. Um, but generally, we need to talk about what it is and how it feels to be victimized by a cyber bully. You've got to think before you post. Teenagers tend to be impulsive, which means that they do things, they act quickly without really thinking through things properly. We need to understand that we all leave what we call a digital footprint behind. What you say online can't be unsaid and what you see online can't be unseen. So we've got to teach children not to share their passwords with anybody and also maybe to take time out from social media and being on your phone. We know that the average teenager, Jacob, spends nine hours of screen time of their lives, which is an enormous amount. Um, our smartphones, which we get when we're really young, have become what we call our modern-day security blanket. 
Um, so really we've got to kind of keep evaluating and thinking about how much time we're spending online and investing in other areas of our lives as well, playing sport, proper face-to-face friendships and, and those sorts of things. Um, let's move on to another section. Um, I've often heard when it comes to psychology that if a person doesn't want to be helped, you generally struggle to help them. So in in that situation, what would you do? Okay, so very often somebody might be afraid or reluctant to seek help. And I find generally what happen, what, is, what is the best approach is, Jacob, is just to reassure them. You know, try and explore what they're scared of. Sometimes people feel that they'll be judged or they'll be very made very vulnerable or feel very exposed. And often they need time to wrap their heads around the idea of getting help and understand that it can be a real lifeline and that you don't have to struggle on your own. But you can't kind of impose that very quickly. You've got to give the person time to to kind of get used to the idea and really try and understand what's holding them back in a sensitive and caring way. Okay, so say it's a bit more um, like the stakes are raised. Like say you're treating someone that doesn't really want help or refuses to admit that they need help. And God forbid they're showing that they want to hurt themselves in certain ways or that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Do you approach it in a different way or do you still try the same thing? Okay, so when you're talking about self-harm or somebody who perhaps is suicidal, that's uh, having thoughts about suicide, it's something that is a real alarm bell, a real red flag. And we always take that super seriously. Um, very often, Jacob, when people are feeling suicidal or wanting to end their lives, it's not really that they're wanting to escape life itself, but they want to get out of the pain that they feel in. And in that space, they often feel completely hopeless, despairing. They can't see the alternatives. So if you are somebody in that space or you know somebody who is in that space, the best thing is is to notice Often people signal or send out warning signs to their friends, to their family, and awareness around suicide is probably the most critical. And just getting them to feel that somebody has noticed, somebody has um, um, understands what they're going through, and of course absolutely critically that you don't have to hold on to that information and knowledge yourself because that can be very overwhelming as a friend or a family member even, but that there are professionals who are very carefully trained to manage these situations appropriately and responsibly. Um, have you ever found that there's a client that... Um you were very friendly with and you missed when they moved on by themselves so the way that we trained in our in our um, degree and in, in our internships and um, so forth is we taught very carefully around what we call boundaries which means setting careful and appropriate limits and very often we, we do develop feelings in, in therapy and, you know, you're disclosing lots of very close details about yourself. But our training is very careful around that because when you cross over that boundary, I guess you stop being helpful to the person. They're not looking for tea and sympathy. They're not looking for a friend. They need to have a professional who can objectively understand their lives, understand their issues and what their problems are. And the minute you start going into 
into that gray area, you are you know, you are not being of good service to your patient or your client. Okay, so you try not to like be too friendly or exactly. become friends with your client person. Exactly. So, um, just moving on to another section again. Have you ever had a patient um, that? has become so reliant on you to help them that you cannot convince them that they no longer need therapy when they actually don't? That's an interesting question. So um, I take care never to terminate and end therapy or treatment if somebody is feeling very unready. But your point's a good one because people do, you know, there's a possibility that they grow to rely on and get very dependent on you and the, the space that you offer them. And what I would do then, Jacob, is very gently try to help the person to realize that they've actually started to grow grow, and that they've made a lot of progress themselves and that they can begin to depend on and rely on their own resources and try and help them to understand um, the shifts that they've made. But I always do tell them, even if I do recommend that they're ready to, to terminate the treatment, that my door is always open. And very often in my practice, we might end therapy because a particular issue might have been resolved but people then as different stresses present themselves later on or something else happens in their lives might give me a call or choose to come back into that space to understand and explore a different area or a different problem that they might be having right so you just feel like okay without giving specific details has there ever been a case when the final outcome of the therapeutic treatment has had you feeling that this is what all makes it worthwhile? Absolutely, absolutely. I guess that's why in the helping professions we, we stay doing what we do because it's a very stressful line of work. But when you start seeing somebody who initially felt very hopeless, felt like they weren't coping or they weren't functioning well, when you start to see improvements happening in their lives, that can be incredibly rewarding. Um, when you start to see difficult relationships that they came in with start to shift and change, when they start seeing things differently, when they start understanding things or understanding themselves better, which is what we call insight, it is something that can be um, very rewarding when 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 you when you when you notice that happening. I, I'm, I'm sure it must be very rewarding. I can just imagine. <laughs> Do you ever find yourself analyzing um, your spouse or children or <laughs> maybe your pets? I don't know. That, that okay, so my family get very cross when I try and analyze them, and I've learned over the years not to do that. So when I'm home and I'm interacting with my kids or my family, I really try to shift shift and wear a different hat. But um, I think they often are starting to admit that they've learned stuff from me along the way, and more often than not, they start analyzing each other and even me. <laughs> so um, they take on the role more than I do, I think. <laughs> So you're teaching them, huh? Well, I learn from them all the time as well. Right. Um, the nature of your career is such that you focus on people's actions and body language. Mm -hmm. um, so how difficult is it for you once you, like, finish your work day to switch back into, like, normal mode so that you're, like, not always analyzing? 
Well, in, in this line of work, there's a high rate of what we call burnout and what we call compassion fatigue, if you like, because in a given day, we hold on to a lot of upsetting stories that are in your head at any time. And you might hear many difficult um, things that are shared with you in the course of the day. And we have to find ways to relax so I try and be good about that. I try and do things outside of work, um, you know, develop different hobbies. I try to exercise. I paint when I can. Um, I like to read. Family time is really important. And at the weekends are, are very sacred to me. So once Friday is over and Shabbos is coming, it's my way of really recharging my batteries and going into a different space so that when Monday comes, I can feel like my resource tank is filled <sighs> up again. So you like the sh- you like Shabbos and resting over the weekends. I certainly do. I also love it. Um, where is your practice situated? Okay, so I work from a private practice. I've got an office in Waverley, and that's where I work from. And how do you go about prom- promoting your work and getting new clients? So it's often by word of mouth. Um, often an old patient will refer somebody once we've finished therapy or there are various doctors or GPs that I'm in touch with um, who might send patients my way. Other colleagues who I work closely with might know that this is an area that I uh, specialize in. And that's basically how how I, how we get uh, new referrals all the time. Sorry, I just I just thought of a new question. Yes. And, uh, like before we go back to this section. Um have you ever had a case where you have not been able to help that person? Also a really good question. When I'm getting a new patient, I usually start off by saying that our first initial meeting, our first session is what I call an assessment session because we can't be jacks of all trades. Um, if there's something that I feel I am not sufficiently trained in or it's something that is not a specialty of mine, or if I feel generally that it's just not a good fit with a certain person, it's a bit like a shidduch. You have to have a good energy between you. Then I might take a, um, a line and say, you know, I don't feel like I'm the, the correct person for this. And I always then make a good referral to a colleague of mine who I think would be either better suited to, to the presenting problem or to the personality of the person who's come. It does it doesn't happen often, Jacob, but it has happened on occasion. Right. Thank you for that. And would you, lastly, would you like to give us your contact details if anyone feels that they need help or anything like that? Well, I can be contacted through the studio and they've got my details. So if there is anybody, I'd be more than happy. I've got cell phone details and whoever might be interested in making contact is more than welcome to do it through the studio. Okay. Thank you for coming in today. My pleasure. It was fun talking to you. Thank you.